Um, if this morning we're in, we're still in the book of Joshua, of course, and we're, actually, we're, although we're only in chapter um, eight right now, we're all, we're more than halfway through because so much of it is just description of land distribution and so forth that we'll we'll be skipping over. Um, but uh, it's as I was telling the Sunday school class this morning, it's such a, a wonderful picture or parallel of our spiritual battle that we have today. Back then it was physical as God was the um, sovereign over the nation and spoke directly to the leadership and used the nation of Israel to, to, to judge the nations, especially those in the land of Canaan which doesn't happen today. Today, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty through God to the pulling down of those spiritual strongholds that resist the gospel of Jesus and the spread of his kingdom. So we, we look at these physical things, but we take them with a spiritual analogy for what God's doing today as we march forward for the kingdom of God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we read this passage. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, help us have ears to hear and help us see in the way that you want us to see it. We, we need the Holy Spirit to, to speak to our hearts and interpret to each of us individually what you have for us in this passage. And Lord, I want to lift up Pastor Mast to you, Fred Mast, from the Methodist Church in our community and just ask for healing, Lord, for those, uh, the, the growths that are on his kidneys. Lord, we ask that you would heal them, Lord. That you would either touch him and heal him or work through the doctors. We so need the gospel preaching pastors here in Sedona. So, Lord, I just ask that you'd have mercy on him and bring healing to his body. And be with him and his family as they go through this. And with that church body there. Be with all the churches, Lord, in Sedona that are proclaiming the truth of your word. We thank you for them. We pray you'd prosper them and keep them um, faithful to your word. Help us to do that here at Wayside as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So we're in Joshua chapter 8. It's kind of a long chapter and it kind of repeats some things, but I think it's important for us to read the whole thing. In honor of God's word, would you stand with me as I read through this passage? Joshua chapter 8. It's about the fall of the city of Ai. And the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear and do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you and arise and go to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai and the people of his city and his land. And you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Lay an ambush against the city behind it. So Joshua and all the fighting men arose to go to Ai. And Joshua chose 30,000 mighty men of valor and sent them out by night. And he commanded them, Behold, you shall lie in ambush against the city behind it. Do not go very far from the city, but all of you remain ready. And I and all the people who are with me will approach the city, and when they come out against us, just as before, we shall flee before them. And they will come out after us until we've drawn them away from the city, for they will say, They're fleeing from us just as before. So we will flee before them, and then you shall rise up from your from the ambush and seize the city, 
for the Lord your God will give it into your hand. And as soon as you've taken the city, you shall set the city on fire, and you shall do according to the word of the Lord. See, I have commanded you. So Joshua sent them out, and they went to the place of ambush and lay between Bethel and Ai to the west of Ai. But Joshua spent the night among the people. Joshua rose early in the morning and mustered the people and went up and the elders of Israel before the people to Ai. And all the fighting men who were with him went up and drew near the city and encamped on the north side of Ai with a ravine between them and Ai. And he took about 5,000 men and set them in ambush between Bethel and I to the west of the city. So they stationed the forces, the, ma the main encampment that was north of the city and its rear guard to the west of the city. But Joshua spent the night in the valley. And as soon as the king of Ai saw this, he and his people and the men of the city hurried and went out early to the appointed place toward, toward the Arabah to meet Israel in battle. But he did not know that there was an ambush against him behind the city. And Joshua and all Israel pretended to be beaten before them and fled in the direction of the wilderness. So all the people who were in the city were called together to pursue them. And as they pursued Joshua, they were drawn away from the city. Not a man was left in Ai or Bethel who did not go out after Israel. They left the city open and pursued Israel. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Stretch out the javelin that's in your hand toward Ai for I will give it into your hand. And Joshua stretched out the javelin that was in his hand toward the city, and the men in the ambush rose quickly out of their place, and as soon as he'd stretched out his hand, they ran and entered the city and captured it, and they hurried to set the city on fire. So when the men of Ai looked back, behold, the smoke of the city went up to heaven, and they had no power to flee this way or that, for the people who fled to the wilderness turned back against the pursuers. And when Joshua and all Israel saw the ambush had captured the city, and that the smoke of the city went up, then they turned back and struck down the men of Ai. And the others came out from the city against them, so that they were in the midst of Israel, some on this side, some on that side. And Israel struck them down until there was left none that survived or escaped. But the king of Ai they took alive and brought him near Joshua. When Israel had finished killing all the inhabitants of Ai in the open wilderness where they pursued them, and all of them to the very last had fallen by the edge of the sword, all Israel returned to Ai and struck it down with the edge of the sword. And all who fell that day, both men and women, were twelve thousand, all the people of Ai. But Joshua did not draw back his hand with which he stretched out the javelin until he devoted all the inhabitants of Ai to destruction. Only the livestock and the spoil of the city of Israel, the city, Israel took as their plunder, according to the word of the Lord that he commanded Joshua. So jo Joshua burned Ai and made it forever a heap of ruins as it is to this day. And he hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening. And at sunset Joshua commanded, and they took his body down from the tree and threw it at the entrance of the gate of the city and raised over it a great heap of stones which stands there to this day. At that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And there in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. 
and all Israel, sojourner as well as native-born, with their elders and officers and their judges, stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, half of them in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at first to bless the people of Israel. And afterward, he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that's written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. Amen. This is the word of God. You can be seated. We took a long passage today, but uh, there's, uh, uh, I think it was important to read both parts of chapter 8 together, and I think you'll see in the end why, why we needed to put it together. So the spiritual analogy that we saw in the previous chapter where uh, the city of Ai defeated Israel in battle was that when we cling to those evil things in the world, the things that are ungodly, that God has assigned to destruction, we're not going to win our spiritual battles if we're hanging on to those things. Compromise handicaps our spiritual lives. When we cling to them, we handicap ourselves spiritually. We need to turn to the Lord to know how to get back on track, and that's what Joshua did. And now that the compromise was dealt with and the things devoted to destruction were removed from their midst, burned and buried, Israel was ready to continue the conquest of the land. And so with us, when we confess and forsake our sins, then the Lord goes before us and fights our battles and we're victorious spiritually. We saw how important it is for us to forsake those evil things in our own lives. So at verse one, and the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear. Boy, do we need to hear that today? Do not fear and do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you and arise and go to I. See, I have given into your hand the king of I and his people, his city and his land. So Joshua is encouraged here by the Lord to not fear or be dismayed. That's a really interesting Hebrew word. It means not to be broken down or not to fall apart. Don't fall apart, Joshua. The word uh, there means uh, basically he's what God is saying is quit being afraid, buck up, get it together, Joshua. That's how we begin to get back on track. Yeah, we go to the Lord first, but then the Lord tells us what to do. And if we're uh, like Joshua was whining and complaining, we need to hear him telling us to get it together because we know God is greater than all our problems. Amen? We shouldn't wallow in our failures, but we should repent and turn to the Lord for his directions. Amen? Yeah? Should we? I think we should. Most importantly, God told Joshua, the city has been given to you. Past, it was past tense. It's already done. God did it in the spiritual realm. We can know that God has given us the victory too. Amen? Right? He already won it on the cross, didn't he? 
we, we can wallow in our past, but God s says to us what he says to Joshua. Get up, stop being fearful, get yourself together, deal with the sin in your life, and get rid of the unclean things and start walking in the power of the Spirit. Amen? Claim the resurrection power of Jesus to empower you to say no to sin and yes to his will in your life. Know that the battle before you is already won. As with Jericho, the Lord gave Joshua the battle plan. You know, when they went to Ai, this, right after Jericho, they didn't listen. They did what they thought was right, and it was defeat. But now Joshua's listening. He gets the plan. He's ready to go. He was supposed to lay an ambush behind the city. Apparently, God gave him more details. We see a little bit of it in verse 8. And you know what? Some of our weaknesses need battle plans as well, right? We all know our own personal weaknesses, places in our lives where we struggle. And we need to get our battle plan from the Lord. You know, you can, I'm sure you can find a book about your problem <laughs> because there's so many books about there, out there. But you need God's plan for the battle in your life. God has a plan for your battles. What verse are you going to memorize to deal with your specific battle or temptation or bad habit? Who will you ask to be accountable to help you stay strong and follow through with your convictions? Whatever the Lord directs you to do, do it. Like Nike says, just do it. Amen? God rarely has us do the same thing twice. You know, um, that's because we'd end up following the pattern instead of taking time to listen to God and getting his direction. We'd look to ourself and our own ability instead of his dependability. If every time Jesus healed someone, he put mud over their eyes, uh, we would have started the mud on your eye ministry, right? And we'd write books about it and we'd have classes on what kind of dirt to use and what kind of water to use and how much to use and how to apply it and where to tell him to go wash it, you know. <laughs> but he only did that once, right? Ask the Lord for direction and do what he says. And don't fall back on the old pattern. Don't let, don't, just think, well, that he told me this before to do this the way. Look to him afresh for whatever you're going through. And you shall, verse 2, and you shall do to I and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Only the spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Lay an ambush against the city behind it. So this time, the spoils of war are going to belong to the soldiers. Manna is no longer falling. And they need food for their families. And so, um, as with the case of Jericho, no one is to survive. However, uh, they're, they're going to take the livestock. They need it. I explained why it was necessary for the uh, destruction of the people in a previous sermon. But in just in brief to review, or if you weren't here, it's because of the culture's 400-year headlong decline into depravity. Verse 3 through five, uh, through seven. 
So Joshua and all the fighting men arose to go to Ai, and Joshua chose 30,000 men of valor and sent them out by night. And he commanded them, Behold, you shall lie in ambush against the city behind it. Do not go far from the city, but all of you remain ready. And I and all the people who are with me will approach the city. And when they come out against us, just as before, we shall flee before them. And they will come out after us until we've drawn them away from the city, for they will say they're fleeing from us just as before. So we will flee before them. Then you shall rise up in ambush and seize the city, for the Lord your God will give it into your hands. So this time, Joshua takes a much larger army. I'm sure at the Lord's uh, instruction, he sent 30,000 by night to go to a place where they'd be close to eye but hidden, and couldn't be seen. And he took a smaller group to encamp on the north side of the city with a ravine between them and the city. This would be the battle force that the king of Ai would see in the morning, the small force of 5,000. The plan was to draw the army out of Ai after the smaller group as they retreated. And if all went well, the men of the city would also come out hoping for spoils of war when they see the Israelites retreat. And that would leave the city completely open for attack from the hidden force. And then Joshua would signal them, and the smoke from the burning city would cause the soldiers to panic because they could no longer retreat behind the city walls. So in the morning, they were all in place, and the king of Ai ordered his army to attack. And Israel retreated, which did work. It encouraged them to pursue the, the soldiers of Israel. Even the men of the town of Bethel went out to pursue them. The plan worked just as it was intended, and the city was completely de defenseless against the soldiers who were hidden. Now I'm going to skip over the battle details and just jump to verse 18. And then the Lord said to Joshua, stretch out the javelin in your hand toward I, for I will give it into your hand. And Joshua stretched out the javelin that was in his hand toward the city. So apparently there was this prearranged signal that the hidden forces knew that when he stretched out the javelin, that was when they were to attack. That was the signal. The hidden troops quickly set fire to the city and so that the army of Ai would see the smoke and go into a panic. And then the forces joined together to, to eliminate all the forces that came out from Ai. The only one left alive was the king. Now skipping down to verse 24, when Israel had finished killing off the inhabitants of Ai in the open wilderness where they pursued them, and all of them to the very last had fallen by the edge of the sword, all Israel returned to Ai and struck it down with the edge of the sword. And all who fell that day, both men and women, were 12,000 of the people of Ai. So once the battle of Ai was over, the entire population of Ai was killed all 12,000 people. This was what we would call genocide, but not because of the race, but because of God's judgment on the vile lifestyle of the people of Canaan. And again, if you haven't read the reason for this in previous sermons, I'd encourage you to go back. It's the justice and patience of God that waited 400 years through the barbarity of that civilization that was devoted to destruction. And it's a foreshadow 
of the great white throne judgment when all mankind will be held accountable for their rebellion against the goodness of God. To say that it's barbaric, which uh, critics of the Bible often say, oh, God's so barbaric, he wiped out those people, is to ignore the wickedness of the people that we've even discovered evidence of archaeologically and the need for God to be just. The problem with all of man's systems of justice is injustice. In numerous Bible passages, the judges are told to be impartial, to refuse to be, accept bribes. We're unjust towards others because of the selfishness and greed of mankind that are part of our fallen nature. And the only remedy is Christ who changes our hearts. And he is the only impartial and true judge who knows all the facts. Verse 26, but Joshua did not draw back his hand with which he stretched out the javelin until he had devoted all the inhabitants of Ai to destruction. So Joshua kept that javelin stretched out toward Ai until they had done all the Lord commanded them to do. Now, I think he was probably, I'm not sure, maybe the Lord commanded him to do it that way, but he's probably remembering back to his first major battle with the Amalekites when they were in the wilderness. If you recall this story, Moses was told to go up on the mountain and hold up this banner. And as long as the banner was held up, the Israelite army under Joshua was successful. But Moses being old and the battle went on long, his hands began to get heavy and so uh, Aaron and Hur held up his hands until the battle was victorious. Maybe that was going through Joshua's mind. I've got to hold this out until we're completely victorious. Sometimes we hear what God wants us to do and we begin to obey. But after the main thing seems almost done, we slack off and we never fully finish. Partial obedience is not really obedience. Joshua understood that, and he stretched out that his stretched out javelin was assigned to the army to finish what they had begun. This reminds us to persevere in our spiritual battles until we're home in glory. We can't give up or slack off or. You know, uh, my dream is retire and go to a Caribbean island. And God says, Beto. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> we have to persevere to the end. There's a, there's a saying, there's no retirement from this war. It's to the end. Do not be weary in doing good. God's goodwill for in due season we will reap if we don't give up. I've seen many begin to follow the Lord in, and in time they settle for what the world had to offer. Sometimes the most excited new believer falls the hardest because he or she finds out that there's more to be sacrificed or let go of in their life than they expected. That's why we have to count the cost and decide if we're willing to go to the end because Jesus took it to the end for us. 
Verse 27, only the livestock and the spoil of the city Israel took as their plunder according to the word of the Lord that he commanded Joshua. So Joshua burned I and made it forever a heap of ruins as it is to this day. So in Jericho, everything was destroyed, but in this case, the Lord gave permission for the army to take the spoils. And as once the city was plundered and burned, then the walls were toppled to make it a heap of ruin. Verse 29, and he hanged the king of Ai on the tree until evening. And at sunset, Joshua commanded, and they took his body down from the tree and threw it at the entrance of the gate of the city and raised over it a great heap of stones where it's, which it stands there today. The king was hanged on a tree and left until evening. You see, the law in Deuteronomy 21:23 says, whoever is hanged on a tree is cursed. And you know, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says this was true of Jesus. The cross was wood. It was, in a sense, a tree. And he took our curse for us. When the author recorded the account, the pile of stones was still there. And all of this foreshadows Satan's demise when he and his angels are thrown into the lake of fire. I'm going to read a, a, a comment from Pastor uh, David Jackman um, in a commentary called uh, Preaching the Word because it helps to kind of explain um, why there has to be a final judgment. And he uses the book of Isaiah and how Isaiah is sectioned off. He writes this, The Old Testament foreshadowing is seen supremely in the prophecy of Isaiah, written as an extended answer to the question posed in his opening chapter, that is in the opening chapter of Isaiah. And that question is, how can the faithless city, Jerusalem, become the faithful city, New Jerusalem? Which is to say, spiritually, how can the people of God who were so unfaithful in the Old Testament and become, or us today, become that heavenly city where there is no sin. Or to put it in more universal terms, how is the sinful human race ever to be rescued, redeemed, and restored to the image of God in which we were created? Isaiah's answer is given in three portions of or portraits, I'm sorry, of the Messiah as the incarnate son. The first is God with us, Emmanuel. That's Isaiah 1 through 39. The second is the suffering servant, Isaiah 40 through 55. And the third is the warrior king or the anointed conqueror in Isaiah 56 through 66. The last of the three figures is especially significant here to this passage we're reading in Isaiah. I'm, I'm sorry, in Joshua. In Isaiah 63, 1 through 6, the portrait is drawn of this mysterious figure clothed in splendid apparel, but his garments are red-stained, not with the vintage of trodden grapes, but with the lifeblood of the nations. trampled in his wrath. 
This is the day of the vengeance of our God, Isaiah writes in 61.2. If there is no ultimate destruction of all of God's enemies, there can be no guarantee of the ultimate inviolability of his eternal kingdom of love, joy, and peace. The opposition has to be vanquished and removed if the kingdom of God is to rule as the new creation. So the picture of the king of Ai hanged on a tree until evening, gruesome as it is, conveys the reminder that the, the, the same destruction ultimately awaits all of God's enemies. For our God is a consuming fire. Or in the Apostle Paul's words, then comes the end when Christ delivers the kingdom of God and the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. This is the logical necessity if there is to be an everlasting kingdom, a holy city, the new Jerusalem, where death shall be no more, and where there will be no more mourning or crying or pain or tears. If you're saddened by the fact that there will be those who forever refuse the goodness and love of God, you share God's heart. He's not willing that any should perish. But God will not force anyone to repent, nor will he allow anyone who refuses his mercy to corrupt our heavenly home with their rebellious presence. Now moving on to the last portion that we read. After the victory, the nation moved a little northward and to fulfill a command that God had given through Moses. I wonder how this came about because Moses had never been in the promised land and yet he gave them a specific location. And we'll see in a minute how geographically significant it is. And this is in uh, chapter, we're reading now verses 30 and 31 in Joshua 8. At that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord and the God of Israel on Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel. As it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool, and they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. Now, Joshua was told way back in chapter 1, verse 8, to be careful to do all that's written in the law. He was to obey the commands that God gave Moses. And we find the commands of of what he was to do after they crossed the Jordan in Deuteronomy 27, 4 to 8, where he describes, um, we're not going to put up that text, but he describes the using the uncut stones and riding the lawn and having the people on Ebal and Gerizim and how they quote the promises and the curses to each other. And so they're carrying out this command that God gave to Moses. Now, they're to do burnt offerings on the top of Ebal. Burnt offerings were the sacrifice of an unblemished male bull or sheep or bird, depending on the family's financial ability. Of the, the, and so it, it was to show the seriousness of sin, that sin required the shedding of blood. 
And so they used the animal to atone, which means to cover their sin. It doesn't take it away. It doesn't mean it's removed. Only Jesus' blood can do that. But it looked forward to the time when Jesus would shed his blood. The person bringing the offering, would they would place their hands on the head of the animal and confess their sins before the animal was offered. And of course, this was only a picture of how Jesus would come and take our sins upon himself and the punishment of death that our sins deserve. The nation had experienced Achan's trouble, Achan's sin. They had attacked I without seeking the Lord and caused the death of those 36 men. And so they're bringing this offering to get right with God, to say that they're repentant of what had happened. And then, then they bring the peace offering. Because after the relationship is restored, the covenant is renewed, then they celebrate peace with God. And there, in the presence of the people, this is verse 32, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. Deuteronomy 27, 2-4 tells us that the law would have a bit had to be written on the plaster over the stones. And so Joshua plastered the stones and wrote the law, which is probably talking about writing Exodus 20 through 23, which includes the Ten Commandments. Verses 33 to 35. And all Israel sojourner as well of native born. So they didn't have to be an Israelite. It could be those traveling with them with the elders and officers and their judges stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant before the Lord, half of them in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at first to bless the people of Israel. And afterward, he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that's written in the book of the law, there wasn't a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel and the woman and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. It's the perfect place for this to happen between Ebal and Gerizim because the mountains form like a, an amphitheater and so that they can hear each other on each side. The direction God gave Moses was to build the altar on top of Ebal. That's where the curses were pronounced. The altar was recently discovered on Mount Ebal. Let's show that picture, if you would. Uh, recently, an archaeologist uh, saw these stones on top of Mount Ebal and did an investigation into it and found out that it dates all the way back to the period of the Judges. They know it was an Israelite sacrificial place because all of the bones were of clean animals, unlike Greek sacrifices. So they know that this was an Israelite place of worship and sacrifice. Now, the period of the judges is immediately after Joshua. So some archaeologists said, well, it doesn't match exactly. So he dug a little deeper. And what do you know? In the limestone in the top of that mountain is a hollowed out, a circular hollowed out place where somebody even before the period of the judges had done sacrifice there on top of Mount Ebal. 
Now Israel is divided into two groups, one on Gerizim, the other on Ebal, with the Ark of the Covenant and the Levites in the middle of the valley there at the valley floor, which um, the valley of Shechem, right between the two mountains. And Joshua reads the blessing for obeying the law and the curses for disobeying it. Deuteronomy 11.29 tells us that the tribes on Gerizim, which was a wooden, uh, a wooded and fruitful mountain. So we just saw the picture of Ebal, which is kind of bare and rocky, right? That's where the curses are pronounced. But on the wooded, uh, fruitful side is where the promises are pronounced. This would have included Deuteronomy 28, which lists the blessings and the curses. Now the altar is on top of Mount Ebal where the curses are pronounced, right? That's because we need something to come between us and our behavior and God. Do you get the picture? So the people were taking the land and these laws were the blessing and curses that were to guide them as they lived as a nation. Because of their recent failure, it was the perfect time to renew this covenant. I wonder what their future would have been like if they'd kept doing this year after year. Keep reminding themselves of the blessings of God for obedience and the curses for disobedience. During the life of, jo of Joshua, they did obey. The scripture tells us that all through his life and the elders that outlived Joshua, they obeyed. But then when we get into the book of Judges, we read that every man did what was right in his own eyes. They forgot the barren picture of Mount Ebal. And we forget it today. A life in obedience to Jesus' commands and walking in the Spirit is going to be fruitful. And a life lived for the flesh will be a barren waste. We have the same challenge of reading the blessings of God's promises that we have in Jesus. And we also have the warning from Israel's history, warning from the New Testament authors, and from Jesus himself. Are we reading them often and taking heed to them? Whenever we read the New Testament, we come across blessings, the greatest of which is is what Legene shared earlier, the forgiveness of sins and eternal life with our Savior. The ultimate curse comes from our rejection of the Holy Spirit drawing us to Jesus. That curse is an eternal judgment. These blessings and curses are infinitely greater than those blessings and curses they re recited on Ebal and Gerizim. Shouldn't we remind ourselves on a regular basis what has been revealed to us in God's word. I want to end the message today by doing what they did, um, but with the promises and the curses that we find in the New Testament under our new covenant. So I'm going to ask you all to stand. Would you stand with me? And those on my right side, you're special because you get to pronounce the blessings. Okay? And those on my left side, you're going to announce the curses, all right? So we're going to kind of relive the Ebal Gerizim experience, but under the new covenant. So I've picked a few verses. There are many, many more. And maybe as you read through the New Testament, you can think about it in this manner. So if you would go ahead and put up 
the promises and curses. So those of you on my right, would you recite with me verse 36a? Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. And left side, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. But watch yourselves lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Does that give you a little feel of what it would have been like to have been there? The, the seriousness of the blessings and the cursings that God has pronounced. It's not be, because it, that he wants to do that. It's the natural outcome of those things. So as a benediction while you remain standing, I want to read Romans eleven thirty-three to 36. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom of the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Amen. Let me close with the prayer. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the promises. Thank you for the warnings of the curses, the consequences of hardening our heart toward you. Help us to live in the promises, Lord, and watch ourselves that we don't fall under those curses, those natural outcome of rebellion against you. Lord, be with us as we go. Thank you for each one that's here this morning and be with us all as we go. Help us to be lights in our community. Help us to shine your light wherever we go, to spread your love in this town and to those we speak with all over. Thank you for what you're doing in our lives and here at Wayside. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Thank you for coming.